0: Hey church, I am holed up in the basement of Soma Kids, but I'm excited to bring you this teaching this morning. Uh, I wanna start by thanking so many of our leaders this week. I know elders and deacons and staff members and many of you were out in the community being the hands and feet of Jesus. And it was so beautiful to watch you just scramble with us to care for and create digital gatherings and just respond to the chaos with so much grace and agility and love. So thank you uh, just to start here our time. The last 10 days in Indianapolis has been crazy. I think we've experienced a generationally unprecedented disruption in daily life. Started with Governor Holcomb's limitations on public gatherings of no more than 250 people. And then we saw the NCAA, our very beloved NCAA here in Indy canceling March Madness. Uh, School systems followed shortly. IPS and others began to shut down and parents were now Uh, homeschooling their kids, uh, moving to distance learning. Uh, Many of you uh, watched your companies uh, shut down operations or switch to a remote workforce. Mayor Hogsett, earlier this week, declared a local state of emergency and limited travel to only essential activities, which basically means going to the grocery store or grabbing your medicine or whatever. Uh, Nursing homes, some of you have family members that are nursing homes or hospitals, begin to shut down visitor access to our loved ones. And so I know that many of us are feeling right now just a sense of fear, anxiety, vulnerability, and maybe even fragility. It's kind of the air that we're breathing right now as uh, Christians and as human beings. And so I know that many of you have said, I can't wait for just the new normal. And it doesn't seem like it's gonna get better anytime soon. And so I know that many of you are carrying an emotional weight. You're carrying a burden um, of of loving others and trying to take care of yourselves. And I just want you to know that um, we see that and we are praying for you and want to be available to you should you need to talk or um, should you need prayer. Uh, This morning, I want to talk about um, something I'm calling uh, having a peaceful presence in the time of coronavirus. And really, I kind of lifted that title from an article that I read that was really moving to me this past week by uh, an author named Andy Crouch. He wrote an article called Love in the Time of Coronavirus. And one of the quotes that really stuck out in the article and really got me thinking and praying about this teaching time was this. He says, all of us have a primary responsibility as leaders, as far as it depends on us, to be well-rested, soaked in prayer and contemplation and free of personal fear and anxiety. We need to start and end each day as children of our Heavenly Father, friends of Jesus, and grateful recipients of the Holy Spirit. We need to pray for genuine spiritual authority, rooted in the love that casts out fear, to guard and govern our lives as we lead, and trust that God will make up what is lacking in our own frail hearts, minds, minds. bodies. And he defines anxiety in a really interesting and compelling way. He said that anxiety is imagining the future without Jesus in it. And I know many of us are looking to the future, are wondering with all of this uncertainty, how do we think about the future? And for many of us, if we're honest, that's a future that doesn't feel like Jesus is is there with us, is present with us. And so we experience that anxiety, the churn, and and the the fear. Um, Honestly, before coronavirus even came to uh, become this, this pandemic uh, medical crisis, public health crisis, um, we experienced quite a bit of collective anxiety as a society. There's a therapist and a rabbi by the name of Edwin Friedman. He wrote a book that I read a couple of years ago, one of the best leadership books called The Failure of Nerve that I've ever read. And in it, he talks about kind of this anxious these anxious social systems that we live in, and he identified five characteristics in kind of a secular Western cultural moment where we believe in the myth of progress and we've kind of put our hope in a lot of ways in science and technology um, and just this this utopian idea of uh, progress. He says that is kind of the perfect setup for uh, generalized anxiety. And he said there are five core characteristics of anxious social systems. And I think it's a great paradigm. It's a helpful paradigm to think about because now what we're experiencing is really a heightening and an intensifying of a condition that uh, in our individual lives, kind of our atomized existence before the coronavirus, we were already experiencing and Now it's just kind of ratcheted up maybe on a whole new level. But he, he talks about five characteristics. The first is reactivity. We live in a moment where it's characterized by intense reactions of fear and anxiety and outrage to these negative external situations that are happening around us. We're constantly reacting and responding to what's happening um, rather than being proactive and grounded. That then creates this sense of hurting, a hurting instinct. Since we are social creatures, people tend to band together. And what happens in times of anxiety is anxiety is literally like a virus that spreads from person to person. and, And really, we begin to fall into a mob mentality. That then, he says, is always followed by what he calls blame displacement. Instead of looking inward for some of the underlying causes of our anxiety, and maybe even taking responsibility for the areas of change that we can affect, we tend to blame others. We tend to blame external forces, external authority figures, to blame institutions, the government, the media, the church, our educational systems, And uh, and we just displace blame um, rather than looking inward to say, how am I contributing to this? Um, That then leads to a quick fix mentality, right? Where we have this emotional and spiritual fragility and anxiety, and it creates a really low threshold for perseverance and endurance through these moments of pain that... Uh, Kind of in in generations past that ability to persevere in pain leads to a breakthrough eventually But we look for quick fixes and superficial solutions And then the last characteristic was a lack of well differentiated leadership Um, By differentiation he meant that um, leaders often in anxious social systems don't have a grounded sense of who they are They're not clear about what they stand for and so they tend to either merge with kind of uh, this mob mentality, or uh, react violently against the anxiety of others and oftentimes can even oppress others because of that anxiety. And the opportunity for renewal, for revival, um, for healing is often undermined by a leader's own low emotional maturity as well as the culture's low uh, emotional immaturity. And so what we get essentially is anxious leaders who perpetuate Anxious systems. One of the things that he says can kind of break this cycle of anxiety is, and he was a big believer and one of the early pioneers of family systems theory, um, and you can read more about that maybe online, but essentially what he argued was that systemic renewal and healing in a culture or a family or uh, an organization starts with leaders who embody what he called a non-anxious, non-reactive presence. And by that he meant that they have a clear sense of identity, They have a clear sense of calling. They know what their vision is for their life and for their organizations and they have values and ultimately they're courageous to kind of resist this mob mentality of anxiety. He says the most important thing for leaders in times of crisis is not their intelligence. Right? Lots of smart people do dumb things in times of crisis. It's not a certain technique or a formula or a framework, but it's really a matter of being a certain kind of person in the midst of anxiety. And so I think that really got me thinking about, for us, a more basic question for our church, for our community, is to step back from all the chaos, the crisis, um, the anxiety, the fear, and to ask a more fundamental question. What is God doing in this moment in our world? What is God's invitation to us right now in terms of what we do with our fear and our anxiety? How can we be those self-differentiated leaders? How does God wants to infuse our presence in the world with the fragrance of his own presence in a way that actually leads to healing, not more anxiety and chaos. If you have a Bible, I wanna invite you to turn with me to John chapter 14. And I wanna read just a few short passages from chapters 14 and 16, because Jesus talked a lot about fear, he talked a lot about anxiety, and frankly, he invites us to live a different kind of way in the world than maybe uh, the rest of the world is thinking right now. So I want to start with John chapter 14, verse 27. Jesus says, This peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Don't let your heart be troubled or fearful. Then, if you flip over to chapter 16, verse 31, Jesus responded to them, Do you now believe? Indeed, an hour is coming and has come when each of you will be scattered to his own home and you will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world. Be courageous. I have conquered the world. The context for this passage is really interesting. Um, Scholars call this, biblical scholars call this the farewell discourse. Chapters 13... To chapter 17 and it's essentially Jesus's final moments before he's going to physically die and then resurrect and depart from his disciples. I think it might be better called the farewell disruption for the disciples Um, and and there's this repeated refrain there's these themes and phrases that are repeated throughout this discourse Uh, but the two that really stand out to me the two that uh, have drawn a lot of people's attention over the years in times of crisis are these two phrases Jesus says over and over and over again at least three times in this exact way you will have trouble in the world he he guarantees that we will have trouble we will experience suffering we will experience opposition but then in the midst of that trouble in the midst of crisis he also says don't be afraid don't let your hearts be troubled don't let your hearts be anxious don't let your interior life be characterized or dominated by fearfulness so what's happening here with Jesus's disciples Um, is that they are coming to grips with the loss of their security. What gave them a sense of security in their life with Jesus was the physical presence of Jesus. I mean, think about it. They walked with Him. John says they saw Him, they touched Him, they were able to do life with Him in a very physical, embodied way. Now, that's all shifting. That's all changing. And now, for the first time, they're being forced to live in a new reality of physical absence But Jesus is going to say, uh, intensified spiritual and relational presence. So, absence in the way that Jesus is describing is actually an opportunity for a different kind of presence. So, let me just say a couple things about these texts, and then I want to get into how I think we apply this as a church. First off, when Jesus uses this language of this kind of language of being troubled you're you're going to experience trouble in this world this idea of being troubled is the is literally it means to be disturbed or to be thrown off center and so some of the things he talks about throughout the gospels in terms of the trouble that we'll face in this world um, are things like wars and rumors of wars he talks about persecution and opposition because of our faith he says the world will hate you because of me he talks about disease which is very relevant to us today and he talks about death. And what Jesus is doing is he's kind of naming those realities and just normalizing them. We tend to think of those realities as what happens sometimes. And what Jesus is saying is, no, this is actually the, the normal thing you should expect, right? Trouble interrupted at times by peace, not peace occasionally interrupted by trouble. So Jesus says, in the midst of trouble, I give you my peace. I leave this to you. It's the idea of bequeathing something or almost like an inheritance, a legacy that's given to us. He says, I leave you peace. This word peace is the word for shalom. It's a rich, it has a rich Hebrew background. Uh, it means flourishing or a state of wholeness. And Jesus says, the kind of peace that I want to give you is different than the world's peace. The the peace that a secular society has to offer us so that often when people talk about peace in our cultural moment, they're talking about kind of the absence of war um, or the ceasing of conflict or division between different nation states. Jesus says, my peace is not an escape is kind of peace. Sometimes in the world, we get offered an escape, right? We can numb out or we can escape the hard things that are happening or click our heels and wish that there's no place like home and no place like home. Or maybe it's a controlling kind of peace where we seek to manipulate others uh, into our own agendas and thereby create somewhat of a false peace. And Jesus says, that's not the kind of peace that I've come to offer. He says, I give you peace and I give it to you in your heart. And, And this idea of peace in our hearts is really what Jesus is saying is peace is an interior reality anchored in something greater than the changing situations and circumstances of our lives. The last thing that I want to say here about this passage is that Jesus says this is a peace that he gives to us. Peace in the economy of God is a gift. It's not something that we can acquire through prosperity. It's not something that we can achieve through performance. It is a gift. It is a supernatural grace of God. And so only in Jesus can we truly experience a sustainable and resilient kind of peace. And so Jesus' imitation to those who are In crisis whose ideas about the future have been dashed is to receive his peace. He says, I want you to be and become a non-anxious presence in this world. I want you to flourish in the midst of crisis. I want you to understand when you've exhausted all of your personal resources. Come to me, he says in other places, and you can find rest for your soul. I will give you the resilience to thrive in the midst of chaos. So what I love about this invitation here is that Jesus assumes the presence of fear and anxiety, right? The the verbs here are all in the present tense, and it's as if Jesus is saying, I see your fear and anxiety. You, You can't make yourself not be afraid, right? You can't make yourself or wish away anxiety. Anxiety is actually the body's natural response to a threat. It's literally hardwired into our limbic system that we begin to see a threat and we respond with fear and anxiety. And what Jesus is not saying here, he's not saying deny your fear or anxiety. He's not saying, you know what, don't worry, the coronavirus, no big deal. You know, shouldn't be anxious about that. What he's saying is, I want you to take that fear and anxiety, that natural bodily response to threat and opposition, and I want you to allow it to drive you deeper into trusting me, to experiencing real peace with me. Let me hold you in the midst of your fear and anxiety and transform that and drive you deeper into a relationship with me. So I wanna just spend a few minutes here as uh, we begin to head down towards the close here, just talking about uh, what it looks like for us to live into this invitation. What does it look like for us to be a peaceful presence, a non-anxious presence in a cultural moment of panic and anxiety and isolation? In other words, what we're trying to envision here is an alternative posture that we can live into that embodies the life that Jesus brings to his people by grace. This is the invitation of Jesus to his followers of all ages. And and I think one of the important things that we do here is we reframe this moment that we're living in in terms of how we're talking about and thinking about the coronavirus. We certainly need to acknowledge it is a public health crisis, that it is is, uh, impacting so many people, it's very dangerous, it's a very grave threat. But we also need to make sure that we reframe it from merely a public health crisis that creates systemic global anxiety to also an opportunity for renewal, an opportunity for a witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Historically, Christians have always seen times of change and crisis and transition as catalysts for renewal and revival in both church and society. And what this moment is forcing us to do, it's forcing us to slow down. It's forcing a kind of reset for us as a church. One author I read this week in an article uh, framed this as a kind of global Lent or a global Jubilee season where everyone is having to slow down from the busyness of their lives and literally return to their homes. That's what happened at Jubilee. Everybody would go back to their homes. And what I think this author was trying to communicate is that there can be, in the midst of the danger, in the midst of the very real threat to public health and safety, there can be hidden gifts for those who are willing to look and to see and to discern and respond to God's imitation. And that's this uh, invitation to see this as a Lenten season, to see this as a Sabbath of sorts, to slow down. Dallas Willard said that hurry is the great enemy of the spiritual life. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. And so we want to slow down and we want to pay attention and ask God, what are you doing in this moment? Ignatius of Loyola, uh, a Spanish writer a couple centuries ago, said this, We should not fix our desires on health or sickness, wealth or poverty, success or failure, a long life or a short one. For everything has the potential of calling forth in us a more loving response our life forever with God. Our only desire and one choice should be this. I want and choose what better leads to God's deepening life in me. So what are some of the hidden invitations of renewal that we see in the season of slowing down? How do we live into that non-anxious, peaceful presence? The first thing I think we see is this is a renewed invitation. I believe this is a renewed invitation for the church for self-reflection and self-clarity. We've talked a lot about Uh, in the past as a church community, how there's so much distraction. We've talked about the fracking of uh, the American mind with all the uh, advertising and marketing and media that's happening. Um, There's so much distraction when it comes to our faith and complacency and superficiality. And while in this time of the coronavirus, we're still gonna have access to many of those same sources that keep us in a state of distraction. um, We also need to be careful to avoid the temptation to numb ourselves right? Like, uh, I'm all for Netflix documentaries. I'm all for catching up on your favorite podcasts. But there's a difference between binging uh, and engaging in kind of mindless distraction around news cycles, or maybe your thing is novels, or maybe it's Netflix documentaries, and, and really being strategic with what we consume. And so I want to encourage you to ask God to use this time, not to numb you, but to wake you up, to help you pay attention to what He's wanting to do in this time of Lent. So what happens when we get into our homes is that things start to bubble up that we've been ignoring for a while. Oftentimes our busyness is one of the ways that we avoid asking deeper questions about our lives. And so what begins to bubble up as we get in our homes, as we come face to face with our own souls, with our, with our spouses, with our children, with our roommates, or maybe we just live alone and we're just face to, we're forced to face ourselves, is sadness begins to bubble up anger and outrage begins to bubble up, fear and loneliness and disappointments and wounds and memories from the past and longings and desires that maybe we haven't thought about for a long time. And for some of us, it will trouble our hearts, right? Now that we have these other trivial concerns set aside, now we begin to find that our hearts are either troubled or maybe for some of us, they're not troubled enough. Maybe for some of us, our hearts we find are numb and callous and hardened. And so I see this as an opportunity for us as the people of God to step back from the normal rhythms of life, to reflect on the deeper questions of faith and community and where we find our sense of security and our attachments and our loyalties. I was reading a story in the news uh, this past week, I'm sure many of you saw, about the man who had hoarded like 18,000 bottles of hand sanitizer and was trying to sell them on Amazon. And my first response was like, how dare he? How, could he? how could he do something like that, be so selfish? And I was like all judgy and, and kind of condemning. And then I began to take a step back and to realize, man, if I'm honest, I see some of those same impulses in my own heart. I see some of those same self-protective instincts living inside of me. And, and, I, and I, I don't want to be that kind of person. I want to be a different kind of person. But for all of us, that's just a natural impulse to be self-protecting and to think of ourselves. Mark Sayers had this prophetic word that I read in a book that actually came out last year um, ahead of this pandemic. And here's what he said about this moment in which we're living. He said, the secularist life script in which humans attempt to live without having to confront their great questions of life creates an insulation against faith. However, this insulation is not as secure as it may seem. If we endured, get this, a global flu pandemic like the one in the early part of the 20th century that killed millions of people across the world, How we view and process our personal potentials and possibilities would be deeply shaken. Think about how different your life would be. Consider how you would have to readjust your life and how you access community and relationships. That was written before Wuhan, before any of this started. And so the question we need to be asking ourselves in this time is, um, where is my heart troubled? What might God be showing me in this moment about my deepest commitments, my deepest loyalties, my deepest attachments, my anxieties, and my fears? Where am I finding my peace? Don't run away from those questions, but lean in and press into those questions and, and be honest with God um, in terms of what kinds of answers He might want to bring to your attention. The second imitation here, I think, is also a renewed imitation to abiding with the Holy Spirit Um, The disciples' greatest fear in this passage was being left alone. They were petrified to be left alone. They were encouraged by the presence of Jesus. And you may find yourself as well after time to reflect and time for clarity to begin to feel your own sense of isolation, your own sense of disconnection and loneliness. And maybe it triggers a deep fear and anxiety in you. And we all have those coping mechanisms for how we keep those feelings at bay and how we pretend that we're in control of those things. And what happens during the pandemic is many of those comforts, many of those coping mechanisms will be stripped away and our illusion of control will be shattered. And it leaves us feeling exposed, powerless, helpless, out of control. And what we need to be reminded of is that Jesus sends the Holy Spirit, he says throughout this passage, to dwell in us, to build a, literally the idea of dwelling is to build a a spiritual and emotional and psychological home in us. Peace is a fruit of the Spirit. And so physical absence and isolation doesn't have to mean that you're alone, doesn't mean that I'm alone. Uh, God's power and His presence is available to us at every moment. If you're a follower of Jesus, and if you're not a follower of Jesus, put your trust in Him, and His power and presence will become available to you at every moment. And what the pandemic is doing is calling us back to a life of desperate dependence on the Holy Spirit. And so we have an opportunity to pray with a new fervency, right? To reset our life rhythms and to reorient around finding our greatest joy, our greatest happiness, our greatest delight in God. That's why Paul writes um, a per- person who's definitely included of in fear and anxiety, Philippians four, don't be anxious about anything, but through everything by prayer and petition, make your requests known to God and the God of peace will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The third thing we see here quickly is a renewed invitation to meaningful community. Isolation is going to drive us away from and out of this kind of hyper-individualism that we've gotten ourselves into as a society over the last couple of decades and towards community, right? Like we read overseas and we see their mental health crises breaking out all over the place. And so this will be the great surge in addition to the virus being transmitted. There will be, there will be a surge of mental health crises as people are face-to-face with the, the negative effects of isolation. And so this is a time for us to take stock of our relationships and to maybe begin to reach out to others and to pursue deeper community. And then finally, I believe this is a renewed invitation to sacrificial neighbor love. Peace is never a dead-end street. It's always intended to be shared with others, and peaceful presence comes when we begin to redirect our focus away from ourselves towards our neighbors. As we seek a deeper communion with God, God then lifts the horizons of our vision to look outside of ourselves, and to begin to, as Jeremiah says, seek the welfare, seek the shalom of the city. And he says, in their shalom, you will find your shalom. Throughout the history of the church in times of crisis, plagues, they saw this as their opportunity to shine. The best moments of the church were always in times of crisis, not in times of complacency. And that's why Jesus goes on to say in John 17, the world will know that you are my disciples. As you are together, abiding in the Spirit's presence, as your hearts are knitted together in love, you have the opportunity to become individually and corporately a peaceful, non-anxious presence that spills out into our life in the world and fuels sacrificial love and service towards our neighbors. And that is something the government cannot teach us. That is not something we're going to learn uh, in lockdowns. It does not increase our capacity for love and service to other people. That is the gift that the church has to offer to each one of us. And people will always remember how they were treated in a crisis. So just remember as you are isolating, as you are quarantining, as you are taking proper and necessary precautions, just remember that not everyone in the city has the privilege of working remotely. Not everyone has the, the privilege of holding up at home with full pantries of food or access to digital solutions for community for several months. We have multiple vulnerable communities in our neighborhood. The immunocompromised, yes, The elderly, yes, but also contractors and hourly workers that are losing their jobs. People that have mental health challenges, the chemically addicted, families who have children with disabilities, the homeless, the spiritually seeking and lost who need Jesus and they need to be invited in. And so just practically, I think that means things like opening up our hearts and sharing our hearts, sharing our vulnerabilities with our neighbors, uh, allowing our affections to be stirred and broken over the most vulnerable among us. I mean, sharing the gospel and offering to pray for people, inviting neighbors into spaces where they can experience the life-giving community of the church, although it is mediated and modulated through technology. Um, Checking in on one another, dropping off meals, picking up extra groceries and cleaning supplies. If you're a doomsday prepper, um, share, right? Take some of those supplies that you're posting all over Instagram and Facebook and your feeds and uh, share those with neighbors who have needs Um, So these are just different ways. My point is, this is a call for sacrificial love. And this is an invitation for the church to do what the church has done best, to step up in times of crisis and to be the beautiful hands and feet of Jesus. And so in closing, I wanna call us as disciples of Jesus, as this church community called SOMA, to rise up and to meet the challenge that is being laid before us in this moment. If we don't, who's gonna do it? If Christians don't, who will stand in the gap? Yes, let's be wise and let's be helpful in asking how we can flatten the curve and how we can slow down the transmission of coronavirus. But I also want us to be asking another question. How can we be a peaceful, non-anxious presence in this moment? How is God inviting us through this time to be a city on a hill to let our light of peaceful presence shine in the midst of darkness and disease? May the peace of Christ be with you, your family, and our city.